Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. Local author Steve Metzger has worked as a freelance writer since 1982. He has written numerous travel books and is co-author of a popular college textbook, The Writer's Way, as well as hundreds of articles and essays for a wide range of local, national, and international publications. Assignments for various magazines have taken him to Italy, France, and Switzerland. Steve Metzger wrote around 300 articles for the Chico News and Review, including food columns as Henri Bouride. The title of his detective novel is Between Rock and Hard Places, He now has a new book that is part biography, part memoir. The title is Rock My Soul, A Poet's Heart, A Broke-Down Palace, and A Final Fare-Thee-Well. In this latest book, Steve Metzger tells the story of Jim Dwyer, a.k.a. the Reverend Junkyard Moondog, wild man, librarian, author. Early in the morning of June 28, 2015, the Reverend Junkyard Moondog was discovered unconscious on the floor of a men's restroom in a mini-mart just outside Sacramento. Apparently on his way home to Chico after the first night of the Grateful Dead's two-night Bay Area appearance on their Fairly Well reunion tour. No one knows for sure how he got to Sacramento, except that he'd gotten to the mini-mart by taxi. He was rushed to UC Davis Medical Center some 20 minutes away, where he died at 8.26 that evening. Word spread quickly through our little town, and while all were saddened, none of us was particularly surprised, especially those of us who'd had front-row seats at Jim's final open mic. On Monday, July 6, 2015, the daily online announcement from the CSU Chico Public Affairs and Publications Office included this note. It saddens us to announce that Jim Dwyer, librarian emeritus and community poet and activist, passed away June 28th deceased in a convenience store in Sacramento, cause of death is unknown pending a coroner's report. Jim's interests and activities in and around the Chico community were legion. A short list of Jim's passions would include kayaking, reading, concert going, gardening, cooking, and cats. He was a constant presence at music events, meetings concerning social justice, protection of the environment, and other issues and open mic opportunities where he would share his poetry, often using the moniker, the Reverend Junkyard Moondog. Jim was irrepressible, unmistakable, fearless, witty, iconoclastic, erudite, perhaps most of all, joyful. The university flag will be lowered in his memory on Tuesday, July 7th, which happens to be National Strawberry Sunday Day and Chocolate Day. Facts Jim may well have known, but regardless, would have found amusing. Steve Metzger, welcome. Thank you. I ask you to read this because when I picked up your book, I looked at the back cover and I read some of what you were saying, that here's this person found unconscious on the floor of a men's room in a mini market. I thought, now, I know Steve wrote a detective story, but <laughs> I, did, I thought well, this story was true. I found this hard to believe. This just is so shocking. Well, like I say, it, it is shocking and hard to believe. But to those of us who saw him toward the end, it wasn't hard to believe. He was in bad shape. Well, it's so mysterious that um, we wonder, well, what was he doing in a minute market outside Sacramento? And you didn't know about this until much later. I think his brother told somebody. Right. Uh, wh- why was he in a mini market in Sacramento? Well, the, su- the suspicion is that he had, he had taken uh, some pu- uh, public transportation from Palo Alto, where the concert was, or the peninsula, to Sacramento, and then he was going to take a taxi home from. Uh, I think he planned to take public transportation, but he missed it. Missed it and took. We're not sure. No, no one's really sure. But somehow he, he got to the mini mart by taxi. We know that much. Yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, what was it? If he's found unconscious, why was he suddenly unconscious? Well, the, the coroner's report said uh, it was a heart attack, basically, but heart attack brought on by um, years of different kinds of abuse. Well, even later in the book, you talked to a childhood friend, a a doctor. They had known each other for 50 years. And I thought it was interesting what the doctor suspected had happened. Right. The the doctor was as perplexed as all of us were about why Jim spiraled so quickly. 
Um, but he suspected that it might have been a result of Jim's uh, concussions. He'd had a couple, and uh, he wasn't sure whether the concussions came about when uh, Jim crashed his truck a couple of times or the uh, concussions were, were uh, the cause of the, uh, the cr- cr- crashes. Well, uh, when we look at the title of your book, Rock My Soul, A Poet's Heart, A Broke-Down Palace, and A Final Fare Thee Well, and so this first part that you just, I just asked you to read explains, oh, that's where that part of your title comes from. So right. you might remind people, we're final fare thee well? Well, it, it works on a number of levels. It's, it's Jim's final fare thee well. Um, the book's his final fare thee well. And it's also, that was the name of the concert that he went to, the Grateful Dead's fare thee well tour that uh, he was coming back from. My guest is Stephen Metzger, and he's a freelance writer. He has been for years, and on the cover of your book is uh, a photograph of where Jim Dwyer lived in Chico. Right. It's an it's a, uh, iconic little house over in the avenues um, that Jim bought in 1986, shortly after he moved to Chico. And uh, one of the first things he did, no, the neighbors aren't sure exactly when, late 80s, early 90s, he uh, put a, about a four-foot peace sign on the roof made of uh, freeway lane divider dots. And uh, about a year after Jim died, I bought the house from his, his estate from his brother, and uh, his brother gave it to me at assessed value on the condition that I leave Jim's peace sign on the, on the roof, which I did, of course. Well, do you know, just this morning, I've asked various people if they happen to know this character because he was distinctive. And uh, <laughs> a woman uh, I was talking to said, uh, did you happen to know? And I used his name, and... And uh, I said, and he lived in a house with a peace sign on it. She says, oh, <laughs> that house is in my neighborhood. I know that house. And yeah. so, so there are a lot of ways that people knew him. And when I started reading the story, I had no idea I did also. Right. But a couple of pages in, there's his photograph. And nobody looked like him. The caption says, the Reverend Junkyard Moondog. And when I saw that photograph, I thought, Oh, yeah. I used to run into him. Yep. But now, how did you acquire the photograph? Uh, that one I found in a box in his garage. Um, when I took over the house, it was, well, first, when I bought it, it was a, a mess. Jim had really not only gone downhill phys- physically, but everything around him was pretty much was in horrible shape. Um, but uh, his brother cleaned it out pretty well, but left a bunch of boxes in the garage full of Jim's writings and photographs. And so his brother didn't live here in Chico. No, his brother lives in Port Townsend. So he came down and took the furniture and did what he could with that. But he left these boxes of Jim's papers and photographs and this and you've got you learned a lot about Jim. I did. Through uh, that. I read he had uh, papers going back to his high school English classes. Um, and a lot of college essays and published articles. And I mentioned that he uh, was a very highly regarded uh, literary scholar. His specialty was uh, ecofiction, ecofiction. And he's written two very well-known books. And um, it's, it's just a puzzle because he was, he was so smart and so clear-headed in some ways and just a mess the other way and he, in other ways. And even his old buddy, Gary Iwamoto, his childhood friend, is just at a loss to explain Jim's demise, as he calls it. Well, I mentioned that I didn't even know I had encountered this character <laughs> when he was living uh, here in Chico. But how did you and how did you meet this character? Well, it's funny you should say that. Almost everyone I, I, I interviewed, probably 20 people for the book, and most of them said, I don't remember actually meeting him. I just felt like, feel like I all, always knew him. And that's kind of how it was with me, except that um, I retired from Chico State in 2010. And back in the early 2000s, I think, for several semesters, I taught a class called University Life or How to Succeed in College, which was... Um, it was basically a way to get uh, retention rates up. They were trying to get students, freshman students, to understand how the university worked and to feel comfortable on campus. And so I basically orchestrated the semester by having, uh, and we all did, we had uh, professors from different departments come in and talk about their fields and their their majors, and basically they were trying to recruit majors. Um, but one thing that I did every semester, this was um, when... Uh, 
brick-and-mortar libraries were still <laughs> a thing, um, I booked a library tour, and uh, I always requested Jim Dwyer, the Reverend Junkyard Moondog, because his library tours were just over the top. He'd be wearing a clown nose <laughs> or, you know, and a tie-dye, of course. And uh, one time I had the students, they were in the one of the uh, rooms off to the side of the library there where the meetings were held, and there was a big screen, and we were sitting there waiting. We thought we were going to see something on the screen, and all of a sudden the Reverend Junkyard Moondog came out from behind the screen wearing his red clown nose, and he was going to give the students their tour of the library. They never <laughs> forgot it. <laughs> My guest is freelance writer Steve Metzger, and he's written a lot of books. So he's written a lot. But the one we're talking about today is his most recent, Rock My Soul, A Poet's Heart, A Broke Down Palace, and A Final Fare Thee Well. And there's a lot of information just in the title. You mentioned this final fare thee well has meaning in a lot of levels. Uh, you've mentioned how talented he was writing poetry, for example. And then a broke-down palace was this little house. It's the little house, and it's also uh, those who will recognize it will, will know that it's the title of a Grateful Dead song, would have, and Jim, obviously being a, a deadhead, um, would have known. And so the Broke Down Palace is a reference to the Grateful Dead song, and it's the house itself. Because the house was only a little over 800 square 800 feet. Square feet. 805 square right, feet. right. And so it, uh, <laughs> it wasn't a palace, particularly when he left it. But it was broke down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you did your part to help restore it. Yeah, I spent about a year and probably $50,000 um, bringing it up to snuff. And then I had it as an Airbnb for a while. Actually, before I had it as an Airbnb, I had uh, um, uh, campfire survivors in there. And I also had um, a spillway uh, yeah. or people who had bailed from the uh, spillway. Well, I think people who uh, live in this area will uh, particularly enjoy your book, Steve, because it brings back so many memories of what we've been through here in the North State. Right, and I also want to emphasize that, that, that Jim's the focus. Jim, the Reverend yeah, Junker, yeah, Moondog yeah, is the yeah. focus, but there's a lot more going on. There's a lot of Chico history, and it goes back to the Bidwells. It goes back to the Chico Army Airfield. Well, and also you uh, give us where you grew up. Right, <laughs> and and I wanted to ask you why it took you over twenty years to get on a private plane again, Steve. Oh, geez, that's <laughs> um, it could be a long story or a short story. That the well, where did the, you grow up? I, well, I grew up in in Marin, in Marin County, and uh, came to Chico in seventy uh, six to go to school and uh, did construction work off and on while I was going to school, and then one summer decided to go to Alaska with some friends who or to work with some friends who had worked, moved up there to work on the pipeline. And uh, one day um, we decided to go, or they had decided to go fishing out on a, uh, and they wanted to land out on a sandbar in the middle of the brush, bush out there. And uh, so we went to one of the many airports in uh, in Fairbanks, got the plane, and, and the, the bush pilot, I'd never met him, who's a friend of, my, a friend of mine, he said, if we take this plane, we're going to sink into that sandbar, so we need to put some uh, oversized wheels on the plane. So we did. Long story short, um, when we went to get gas, the pumps were closed. It was Memorial Day, so we had to go to a different airport to get gas, and when we landed, we crashed <laughs> because the oversized wheels had thrown the angle of attack of the plane off, and, and the, the plane was totaled, and we climbed out of the wreckage. Now, I'm laughing, but it wasn't funny at the time, Steve. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was pretty sobering. <laughs> well, now, when you were in high school, too, I thought it was interesting that your high school guidance counselor, your junior year of college, says, you aren't college material. Told me I wasn't college material. And I bought it, you know. I mean, you believe your counselor, which is why I, I didn't apply to Chico State right away when all my friends were applying to state colleges and, and universities. Um, and I ended up uh, moving out to Colorado when I graduated and working at a ski resort out there. And then I came back and went to College of Marin because I thought, well, maybe I could at least go to a junior college if I'm not college material. Now, you just mentioned uh, skiing. Mm -hmm. And that opened up doors that I found really interesting that you started writing for travel magazines. Right. 
And I think you had one idea, and they said, no, Steve, we've, we've got this idea. We want to send you to Switzerland. Right. Well, yeah, you're sort of conflating two stories. Yeah, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, Right. Uh, I actually went to a workshop in uh, at Chico State one day when I was just thinking I might want to do some travel writing, and it, it was wasn't very uh, of much value except for one thing. The guy said, "He goes, when you pitch stories to magazines, don't pitch them locally. You need to pitch s- travel stories to play to magazines that are published far away. Otherwise, you know they're going to send. You know, if you if I pitch a story to Sunset, which is published, I think in the on the peninsula, they've got a, a staff writer they could send to do a story around here. So <clears throat> I started pitching local stories to uh, publications on the East Coast. The, the, one of the first ones I sold was a story on um, houseboating on Lake Oroville, and that was sold to the, um, I want to say that it wasn't the, oh shoot, it, it was a, an East Coast major travel publication. And uh, they loved it. So what they do, they they put all these stories in, in a file, and then when they do their California issue, they pull them out and publish them. So that was a, an awakening for me to, to learn how to, how to pitch stories. My guest is freelance writer Steve Metzger, and his book that we're taking a look at today is part biography and part memoir. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Steve Metzger, who has written a book called Rock My Soul, A Poet's Heart, A Broke-Down Palace, and A Final Fare-Thee-Well. So what about uh, Jim Dwyer, the, the subject of the biography? Well, he, he was born and grew up in Seattle and uh, was a uh, Outcast there too. His his buddy was this uh, Doctor uh, Gary. Al- he became a doctor. Who but became they a doctor. were childhood. Yeah, Iwamoto, um, and uh, and people might guess by the name that he was Japanese. Japanese and and Doctor Iwamoto talks about that a lot and how unusual their friendship was. That there would be a Japanese twelve uh, year old best friends with a. Uh, an American, Caucasian, uh, 12-year-old. But they were, they were best friends, and they remained best friends until Jim died. Even though they were living way apart? Yeah. Um, Dr. Iwamoto came down, I think, about six months before Jim d- died and was trying to figure out, because he'd seen that Jim was spiraling, and he came down to try to figure out what was going on, and, and he basically couldn't figure it out. Well, and then he was growing up. He had a brother who was 10 years older, his brother Billy, and uh, he is the one who came down to help wrap things up. Uh, right. And, and insisted I keep the peace sign on the roof. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think you saw him, saw somebody coming to the house. And so you kind of, you were living in the neighborhood and walked across the street to offer your assistance. Exactly. Yeah. I saw him, uh, he and a, a, a woman, I didn't know either of them, pulled up and walked into the house and started moving stuff out. And so I went over and knocked on the door and said, you know, I knew your brother. I worked with your brother. I'd be happy to help out if you could. Oh, by the way, they were wearing masks, and this was these weren't COVID masks. That's how bad the house was. Ah. Um, it was it smelled of cat piss even out to the street. Um, anyway, so I told him, you know, I've got a pickup. I can I can make runs to the dump for you, whatever you need. And so I did uh, runs to the dump, the green waste f- facility, and um, helped out a lot. And then. The last day they were here, I said, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a project. I'd love to buy your brother's house. And it, it took about a year because Jim didn't have a will. But the uh, I bought well, it from the estate eventually. People might wonder, too, okay, his brother comes down to help out, and he didn't have a will. Did he have a wife? 
No. Um, and that, and that's a, a big part of the book is, is and a big part of what people suspect may have uh, led to Jim's demise was his ultimate loneliness. I learned way into this project, I was shocked to learn that he had been married as a young man. It didn't last long. But um, I talked to a lot of uh, women who, who dated him shortly, for, or short term, and um, he, everyone says that he, he was lonely. In fact, to me, where that really came clear was in the uh, acknowledgments in both his books, where um, it's the, the template is sort of to say, you know, uh, thanks to uh, my colleagues and thanks to all these people. And then there's usually a paragraph that says, and I'd also like to thank, you know, my family or my wife mm-hmm. or my husband mm-hmm. or whatever. It's very typical. Very typical. It's a template. But there, there's nothing that in Jim's books. There's no, no personal thanks. It's, it's uh, professional colleagues that he thanks. And even um, when you were talking to these people, some of them were surprised. He mentioned me. He thanked me. I barely knew the guy. Exactly. Yeah. So that that's part of his generosity. I mean, he was he was crazy and he was annoying, but he was ultimately incredibly generous. Um, one of his girlfriends tells a story about how uh, one Super Bowl Sunday he won the, uh, the the grand prize. He not where you guess the scores, but where you, or or you, you you you're not betting on the, the numbers, but you just choose some numbers on the. On the forum there, and he won two hundred dollars, four hundred dollars. I think you said six hundred in your book. Yeah, yeah and he asked at, at Duffy's, and he asked yep, for it in twenties downtown Chico. Downtown, and he went out on the street, and so he asked the uh, bar person, uh, "Give me these, this, my winnings in twenty dollar bills," and then he stepped out on the street, walked out on the street, and gave it to uh, homeless people only, and he gave it to women, and he'd only give a twenty to a man if the man had a pet. A, a dog, ca- a cat, or yeah. a dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, because yeah. I don't think they take their cat downtown, right, right. but uh, yeah. yes. And yet, on the other hand, neighbors would say, "You know, he came and knocked on my door and asked to borrow twenty dollars." Yeah, right. It's it's crazy. I don't. No one understands it. Two in the morning, he'd knock on the door, and he'd. Uh, some of his neighbors talk about him, you know, pulling up at two in the morning and, in a taxi and and stumbling to the door and falling down on the way to the on, to the on the way to the door and. And so he would need money in a case like that. And yet when he had money, he was generous and was right. giving it away. Right, right. Yeah. yeah it's, it's a mystery. And, you know, he started Chico State in 86 and retired in 2010. So he had a pension. He, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. he brought the house, probably paid off. I don't know. Yeah. Well, um, I did want to mention that you taught at Chico State, which is how you met uh, junkyard Moondog. The Reverend, Reverend Junkyard the Reverend Moondog. Junkyard Moondog. <laughs> and uh, I did remember it was the Italian Alps that you went to. Right. You had a two-week. I mean, that's yeah. two weeks in some, the Italian yeah, Alps. They, they sent me over there four or five On times for different magazines. I worked for Powder Magazine quite powder, a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Powder, powder yeah. Powder, yeah. And uh, a lot of different uh, travel magazines and, and Sunday supplements of uh, uh, major newspapers. So when you were teaching at Chico State, it's when you met this character. But then after you left Chico State, you're contacted, and Butte College says, Hey, Steve, uh, class is starting in a few days. Would you come (laughs) teach English for us? Yeah, that's what... uh, Apparently, my name came up in a meeting, and uh, I was caught off guard. And they called, I think, on a Thursday and said, Can you start on Monday? And I said, Can I call you back tomorrow? I don't know. And I decided to and ended up teaching eight years at, at Butte, which I'm so glad I did because I just love those students. They were so different from Chico State students. And I ended up teaching uh, through uh, fall of 2018, the campfire semester, which was a very weird way to end mm-hmm. my end mm-hmm. my teaching career because mm-hmm. I think I think I had sixty students in the two classes and, and probably twelve showed up on the to the final meeting and, and the last I think except for finals week I think four maybe six weeks were canceled altogether so it was just kind of a spooky way to end the end a teaching mm-hmm. career. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> I wrote down this quote <laughs> that you said. You're teaching English too at Butte College. One of the best decisions I ever made. Right, right. Because I love the students so much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They were, they were. Some of them were just absolutely brilliant. Um, some of them had been just through crap. I couldn't believe the stories they would tell. You know, I overheard two women talking one time about their mother's meth issues, and it was like it was no big deal. And these these two students, young students, eighteen, just matter 19, of factly, matter of fact, and they knew that Butte College was their way out. 
Well, now, since you mentioned how they grew up, this their past, I want to go back to the fact that, um, and I think you're not unusual in, in this regard, that uh, you and your dad were not, had the best relationship. And I think this is almost typical. It saddens me the way your generation, I might say our generation, the way dads treated their sons. Well, I, actually, he treated me beautifully. And, and, and my falling out with him was very short-lived. And it was probably from when I was maybe 16 to um, 24. Mm-hmm. Mark Twain has that great quote about how smart his dad got as, <laughs> as he got older. Yeah. Right? Um, but yeah, I wouldn't, he didn't treat me poorly at all. He was, he was my hero. But for a period there, he was a, he, he was a Goldwater Republican. And um, I was out there pounding the streets for McGovern in 72. And uh, he made it perfectly clear, <laughs> as Nixon would say, um, that I had, had my rights. But we just um, butted heads in, in politics. But he was uh, very understanding, and, um, and uh, he changed as he got older, too, and in fact uh, voted for Obama the second time. Well, you mentioned some of the um, physical problems that he had, and I noticed that it's toward the end of your book, you had some problems, too. Physically, you mentioned your dad had AFib, right? And he had a heart attack, prostate cancer, and then he had a form of dementia. He had Lewy body dementia. That's how yeah. uh, what he died of. It was, it was hard to watch at the end. Really hard to watch. Well, do you mind telling us what you went through with your heart? Yeah, I. Uh, one day I went over to prompt care. I'd been coughing all night, and I, I thought they were going to give me a prescription for cough medicine. And instead, they uh, they did, uh, listened to my heart and put me on a gurney and took me over to Enloe, where I was for three days, and said, you know, you're in irregular heartbeat, AFib, and uh, um, you need to be on these different medications probably for the rest of your life. I, I think I've um, I've overcome it. I'm, got, got, it's pa- I'm past it now. I had some procedures. Well, this brought back memories for me in France when a friend had a heart attack, and when he phoned his French doctor, he said, get to an emergency room right now, right, right now. That's what happened. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it was scary. So um, his brother came down, cleans out the house, and then you're thinking, um, maybe I'll just um, open this up as uh, an Airbnb. As right. you mentioned. Right. Yeah, my first thought was that, you know, I, it, I'd been at Chico State and I'd seen visiting uh, professors, um, lectures, and uh, fiction writers and pe- different people come and go, and they were always needing a place. So I thought, well, I'll just fix this up. And I still had connections at Chico State, and I said, I'll open it up to them. And then that, that led to the Airbnb. And it's a pleasant location, nice neighborhood. Um, and since then, since the book came out, my daughter bought the house. She bought it a month ago. <laughs> and so uh, she and her boyfriend are living there now. It's Spe- a peace sign on the roof. Speaking of your daughter, you did mention the campfire, which mm-hmm. is where some of your people who occupied uh, your the Airbnb were refugees from, mm-hmm. evacuees from the campfire. Right. And the Honey Run Bridge burned during the campfire, right. and you mentioned your daughter had a personal connection to that bridge. Right, my younger daughter. The, my older daughter bought the house. My younger daughter was married on the Honey Run Bridge. I think it was probably, might have been one of the last uh, weddings on the Honey Run Bridge. Because it used to be a place where people would go to celebrate things like right. uh, a wedding, right. and uh, now they're trying to get it rebuilt. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. So the... Um, Name the Reverend Junkyard Moondog is a mouthful. <laughs> How did he come up with that? Well, because his real name was Jim Dwyer. His real name is Jim Dwyer, and he went, I don't know if you'd say professionally, but at least artistically by the Reverend Junkyard Moondog whenever he'd uh, do a reading at an open mic. That's who he was, the Reverend Junkyard Moondog. And um, he told Jason Casty from the News and Review that it came to him in a poem, and uh, as if it came out of nowhere. But when I was going through uh, the boxes in Jim's garage, I came across a book by the Reverend Junkyard Moondog. And uh, I thought, oh, it's Jim's self-published a chapbook here. But I found out it wasn't Jim at all. It was a different Reverend Junkyard Moondog. They called the, I want to say the saint of, of 
Fifth Street or something. He's a new, a blind New York uh, musician who, a classical musician who's very well known in some circles. I was shocked that I'd never heard of the guy. Um, because you know a lot of music yourself. Yeah, You're a music fan yourself. I'm drawing a blank on his real name right now, but um, he was uh, a, a crazy new New York musician who um, looked very much like Jimmy. Wore a Viking hat, had a long scraggly beard, and he was blind. And yeah, in fact, yeah. I compared the two photographs. You included uh, a photograph would, yeah. of Jim and one of the original Reverend <laughs> Junkyard right. Room Dog. Right. And I thought, gosh, they do look alike. Right, right. <laughs> I had That's to look no, no back accident. and forth to the two photographs. So, so Jim said it came to him in a poem. I, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff I don't know. My guest is freelance writer Steve Metzger. His book, which is part biography, part memoir, Rock My Soul, A Poet's Heart, A Broke Down Palace, and A Final Fare Thee Well. Now, you just mentioned Jason Cassidy. Uh, I think people who are in this area would recognize that name if they read the Chico News and Review. But tell us who Jason Cassidy is. Well, he was the original arts uh, and entertainment uh, editor um, he had a column ca- called Arts Devo, which covered the local art scene. Um, but uh, he's the editor in chief now, and it's uh, you know with uh, af- after COVID and the news and reviews sold their offices, um, they're down to a staff of two or three. So they, I, th- I think they put a, a an e version out every month, and they do a print version. Uh, I mean, every week, and they do a, a, a print version once a month, and uh, they blow me away with what they can do with so little resources. Um, it's it's a great paper. Support the news and review. <laughs> um, I, I send them money every month, and um, I want I want I love print journalism, and I want to keep them afloat. So two things: support <laughs> NSPR. Of course, I do that too. <laughs> You're here right now, and uh, the Chico News and Review. And in his column, Jason Cassidy refers to uh, he writes, "Remembering my friend." Moondog. And they spent more time together than uh, some people did. Right. They worked in the library together. When Jason first moved to Chico, he got a job working in the library. And so he and Jim got to be friends there. And then they be, uh, they went to a lot of poetry slams together. They went to a poetry slam in, I think, Chicago together. Yeah, that's in your and, book. Uh, mm-hmm. San Francisco. And uh, they performed on stage a lot together. Well, people who have heard of him know a little bit about him. But even people who knew him fairly well, that adjective that you mentioned earlier just kept coming up. They thought he was lonely. Right, right. He never never had a life partner. No one knows really what happened with, like I said, hadn't even known he had been married as a young man. And Gary, or Dr. Iwamoto, wasn't sure what happened there. But um, it seems like Jim was just constantly looking for love. And one way that comes up in your book, the way he would um, uh, entertain is maybe the word uh, a young, uh, maybe not a young woman, was to cook for her. Oh, he he loved to cook for his dates, <laughs> and he would he would, uh, as crazy as he was, he would dress to the nines. He'd be wearing white patent shoes and maybe maybe red slacks, and I wouldn't doubt if he'd put the red clown nose on too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did mention that uh, you you had this Airbnb. So these events that came up here in the North State, for example, this was, um, well, to go back, in 1968, uh, the California Department of Water Resources began operating Oroville Dam. They thought, oh, this is a piece of cake, this is fine, this is secure, and um, it ended up, and this is, the, I didn't know this about it, it's the tallest dam in the United States. Right. It's 770 feet. So some years go by, and in 2017, February of 2017, what happened? Well, they were afraid that the uh, spillway was going to give out, and they evacuated, I've got it there, 180,000? Yeah, you said uh, um, the sheriff ordered 200,000 residents to evacuate. To evacuate, yeah. So Residents uh, of uh, Oroville, in, Gridley. Down, down, down a river. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, inside the river. And, mm-hmm. and so... Uh, uh, I ended up with a, f- a family of nine staying in that 800-square-foot house for about a week. <laughs> and then uh, the next, so that was February of 2017, and then in November of 2018, there was another evacuation, and the population, you mentioned in your book, of Chico increased by 
30,000 overnight. Overnight, yeah. And um, the first family that stayed there um, stayed for about six weeks, the McMillan family. I don't know if you know them. They own the Music Connection here in town. Um, they lost their house in uh, Butte Creek Canyon. So they stayed there with their three young daughters. It was ultimately too small for them, and they found a different place. But they were there six weeks or so. And then um, after that, uh, Jerry and Ed Luce, uh, uh, local musicians, Ed, Ed on Northwood, Northwinds, Northwood Winds Repair, uh, I forget what it was called, over on Fifth Avenue there, the uh, musical instrument repair shop. They were there for uh, 10 months, I think, and uh, they loved it. And they've, they've since bought a place and moved out, and so... Not only did they love it, but you loved having these guests. You said they were all wonderful guests. They were delightful to have, and they left the place immaculate. And so you had really good fortune, good luck with your uh, the people who stayed in right. Jim's former house. Yeah, that was the case every time. When it, whether it was Airbnb yeah. guests or, or uh, refugees, um, they all they all got Jim's story. I, I had some literature where I told the story, and and I left a lot of Jim's artwork in the house, and they they all understood and got it. Um, and then an, another great experience with the, the house. Well, in fact, you say that Jim would be pleased also. I think so. He I would be so. happy that right. uh, his house could serve these people right. who, who were in need. Right, and the garage is full of his posters, and, and Hannah, Hannah, my daughter, is keeping him in there. And then another great experience I had with the house. Can I say the name yeah. of the other station? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, our oh. fellow uh, KZFR. Right. I, I was an underwriter for KZFR for two or three years, and uh, the way that worked was that um, I gave them 12 nights a year, and uh, they gave me 12 mentions a month on the uh, on the radio, so it would be, you know, this hour programming brought to you by, by the Blue Peace House. And so over the years, I had uh, most of the musicians who were staying or were playing at the um, women's club doing benefits stayed at the Blue Peace House. I got to know a lot of them, including Tim Flannery, the uh, former Giants third base coach who... Um, the first night he stayed there, he uh, woke up the next morning, the morning of the show, and was out in the driveway playing his guitar for the neighbors. Well, since you mentioned KZFR and uh, the fire, um, there was uh, somebody who had a show on KZFR called Woody and Friends. Right. Woody Guthrie. And uh, David Gazzetti lost his house partially. Partially. Partially yeah. destroyed in Concow. Right. And I think sometimes people don't realize more than just Paradise suffered in the campfire. Right, yeah. Yeah. And some of our reporters here went to Concow and and said, you know, they went through a tough time, too. Right. And and David was one of my sources for the book uh, because mm-hmm. he, not only did he know Jim, but um, he had connections at, at KZFR and um, had amazing stories about uh, Woody Guthrie passing through town in 1938, which I didn't know and I've since read about. That surprised me, too. Yeah. Because yeah. we know about the... Um, Robin Hood, right. the cast coming, but right. uh, I didn't know Woody Guthrie came and spent time. And it all happened about the same time, that, uh, that Robin Hood was filmed in 1937, and then Woody Guthrie passed through in 1938. And I, I think I think that Robin Hood opened about a week or two uh, in the fall of 1938 after Woody Guthrie left town. Well, there was one other uh, event that affected you as a host of an Airbnb, and that was in March of 2020. All of a sudden, I remember how sudden it was. We were told, oh, COVID, eh, no problem. Right. And uh, so you had to close down. Oh, yeah, close down for a few days. Wear exactly. a mask for a few days. Right. And then you repeat this, 14 months. 14 months, yeah. And you'll tell a little bit more and you say, <laughs> 14 months. The house was empty. And we go groceries and we thought it'd be over 14 months. <laughs> yeah. And so, and those of us here in the North State, well, everywhere, we know what that was like, but you as a host then, you couldn't rent out your Airbnb, your right. the Blue Peace House for 14 months. It was empty. <laughs> empty. Yeah. So that's a nice story, uh, a nice ending to your story about this blue house is that your daughter now. Isn't that a great it. ending? I know. It is. It's yeah. a fantastic ending. Yeah. So, Steve, I think people in the whole North State will really enjoy your book on so I many so. levels. And again, there's lots of history, you know. It, it, oh, yeah. In right. fact, I want to ask you about that, but right. another time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Nancy. My guest has been freelance writer Steve Metzger. His latest book is Rock My Soul, A Poet's Heart, A Broke Down Palace, and A Final Fare Thee Well. After a break, I'll be back with author Steve Metzger. 
You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. Local author Stephen Metzger has a book that's part memoir and part biography. The title of the book is Rock My Soul, A Poet's Heart, A Broke-Down Palace, and A Final Fare Thee Well. But included in your book, Steve, are little bits of history for example, John and Annie Bidwell, and it's nice to see that concise history. But I think a lot of people don't know about the history of the Chico Army Airfield, for example. Right, right. It's fascinating. Um, Yeah, and I want to go on record as saying I'm not a historian, and I included (laughs) those little, I think there are six or seven little Mm -hmm. short snippets of Chico history to sort of scaffold the book on or provide scaffolding for the book. Um, but yeah, um, the Chico Army Airfield and when they were training uh, combat pilots out there in the in the 1940s was fascinating. And then the uh, the missile silos uh, chapter was well. Now I was interested in the uh, Army Airfield for one thing is this was before it's called the Air Force, so it's right. called Army right. Airfield. Right. And how did that get started? Well, let's see. That started in 1942. And then in 1944, at the height of the of the war, they started training um, combat pilots. But yeah, because that, at first they were just training pilots. Right, they trained 5,000 out there. And that was 5,000 pilots to me. and ground personnel total. 5,000 yeah. pilots. It was quite an operation. And so the city of Chico leased this property, this uh, airport, to the Army Air Corps, right. uh, a Corps of Engineers. But you know what? You had a personal connection to I, this I did, story. and that, that part was especially interesting to me because my uncle, my dad's brother, uh, was stationed there in 1944 training to be a night fighter. Um, in fact, it, they called it the Night Fighter Division, I think. In fact, I have the yearbook uh, from the year he, when he was out there. Um, he's yeah, so they did during the daytime. They played Monopoly, they, and then they it, went they, to work at night. At night. They train at night. And... Um, my uncle was 19, and uh, he was stationed there. What they did, they moved those guys around a lot because they wanted them to have practice flying at a different airfield. So he was in Chico the year, or when the yearbook uh, was published, and then he moved down to Salinas right after that, and he was flying out of Salinas one night. No one knows why, but he overshot. I think he was he was trying to fly into McClelland, but somehow he overshot Sacramento, and uh, his plane went down uh, just outside Roseville where he went up in flames and he was killed. 19. This is the uh, uncle of my guest, Steve Metzger. And um, then you also mentioned silos. Right. I knew a little about the silos, not much. Um, But, uh, yeah, in 19, uh, let's see, 1959, also, let's see if I can. uh, Oh, yeah, they also built them. I didn't know this. They built them in four places. They built them in Colorado, Wyoming, and, and in Chico. Um, in 1959, and then um, people started protesting, which um, was fascinating. And they basically founded the Chico Peace Endeavor in 1962, which in form still exists. Oh, what were in these silos? Missiles. Um, the missiles were 97 feet long, 10 feet in diameter. The yield, and I'm not sure exactly what this means, um, was uh, 10 megatons. But this, I do know what this means. The range was 6,500 miles. That's amazing to me. So these missiles are, are upright in these silos out where the airport is now and um, ready to launch. 
And then uh, in 1962, there was an explosion. There was a gas leak, and there was an explosion that threw debris two miles. <laughs> so yeah. that's almost back here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I found it interesting, too, that uh, there's a professor, uh, Ken Rose, that wrote a book called One Nation Underground, The Best Fallout Shelter in American Culture. Right. And he's written a lot about the missile silos. Yeah. And so um, these these huge missiles with an incredible range were stored there in these Ready three, to go. three silos. Right. There were. The Air Force built these three silos. Well, why don't we hear about them now? Well, it was deactivated in um, 1965. Missiles removed. The silos capped in 1971. And then uh, just yesterday I came across a book, a pamphlet, over at the uh, Chico Heritage Association, which I recommend anyone interested in Chico visit. It's over in the Garden Walk um, between um, Broadway and Wall. Wall, I guess. Um, it's a little hole in the wall with tons of Chico history clippings and um, articles and books and um, People can just go in and sort of browse through it. It's a wonderful little place. But yesterday I came across a book called... Uh, so you came across this book in that museum, in the Garden Wall. Pardon me? It's in there. Yeah. yeah. And this is just a, a photo or pictures of, uh, of, it, of a few pages. But it was written by Eric Norley, who's on the board of the Chico Heritage Association. And... Um, it's, uh, I learned more reading about this than it, just this morning, basically, um, learn, learning about the, uh, it was called the, the Titan One Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Launching Base, Chico, California. So they were ready to go. Yeah, 6,500 miles. Yeah, I found history interesting in that I find we came so close to serious war that most of it I didn't know about. Right. And I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how close we came to a war. Yeah, uh, Norley writes in, in the book, um, it's a, more of a pamphlet, it's 25 pages or so. Um, Today, the complex of underground tunnels and chambers that comprise what was once a war machine sits empty, dark, and ultimately intriguing. And that he wrote that book originally in 1991 and revised it in 2001. Um, but a, a little side note on, on the silos is apparently it for a while there was sort of a, a party hangout for local teenagers. And uh, they'd go out and hang – somehow they got – silos were capped, but somehow they'd get down in those tunnels and um, it was quite a, quite a place. And in fact, the, uh, the footlights at the original Blue Room Theater came out of those tunnels because the Latimer family and, uh, and their friends who, were, who started the Blue Room needed footlights, didn't have any, remembered the lights out there. Well, now, in this section, you, when you tell about the missile silos, you do circle back to the subject of your book, Rock My Soul, who was Jim Dwyer. And how did you circle back to him? Well, he was quite the peacenik. And um, I said that the Chico Peace Endeavor really was born out of the, uh, the protests, out of the missile silos. And uh, as you know, most, most listeners know, um, it's still active um, every Saturday downtown, what, 1230 to 130 or something? At midday, yeah. yeah. If you drive um, downtown Chico, you will see, if you want to call it peaceniks. <laughs> yeah, and that was, and, and Jim was definitely one. And uh, he was out there sometimes and, you know, hold, holding his, his sign, his peace sign high and, um, so that's how I kind of circled back to Jim. Yeah, because there was another, a woman who was mainly responsible for these activists that uh, right. would, were protesting. And, uh, Taggart? Uh, you yes, you mentioned her name. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I think people will find it is not, I think it's more than just of interest to people who live in Chico who could go to the museum. But this is... California and U.S. history that you're talking exactly. about. Exactly. And then I, I didn't know that there were the other three in Colorado, Wyoming, and Washington, yeah. which yeah. Uh, yeah, makes us part of a bigger picture there. Even somebody like John Bidwell was a national figure. He wasn't just right. of interest just to Chico. Exactly. Well, and, and yeah. I also talk in the book about Ishii. Oh, yes. Which is uh, another uh, huge, uh, important figure. Yes. Well, thank you for writing this book, Steve. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. My guest has been Steve Metzger, and this book, a memoir part, memoir part biography, is entitled Rock My Soul, A Poet's Heart, A Broke Down Palace, and A Final Fare Thee Well. Thank you. Thank you.
And next we have a segment we call The Writer's Room, and it features writers from around the North State. Silent Worship The sky is a startling blue, but we've forgotten to notice. We walk about in the most pedestrian way, forgetting we're here, where light etches the trees in high relief, and the spaces between reveal everything. Same as the window, high up in the meeting room, framing blue sky, slicing angular planes of light that pierce the stillness to its heart. Amy Gaffney The Girl with the Purple Fingers How much sunshine does it take to make a blackberry? How much sunshine does it take to make a smile? I wander through the carnival of colors, sounds, and smells there at Chico's Saturday Farmer's Market. Summer sunshine in the still, cool morning brightens the smiles of young and old. Carefully selecting the reddest of the tomatoes by eye, by touch, by smell. Gathering together some wine-colored eggplants, Ignoring the holes bored by hungry creatures. The strong pull of your berry stall calls out to me with its red, red strawberries and sweet, dark blackberries. And there you are, the girl with the purple fingers, flashing eyes, a smile like sunshine itself. I leave with arms carrying a heavy load and a heart as light as sunshine. David Philhauer. For more information on the writers you've just heard, go to mynspr.org and click on the poetry link. to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.